communication is really tied to leadership. That's it's really a form of leadership. Uh, Beautiful. Because if you if you are you can be the most master communicator in the world, but if you're completely insincere and people don't trust you, it doesn't matter. Uh, so leadership, when it comes to which is the basis, you know, the basis of all effective leadership is is just a few things. One is you don't ask other people to do something you've never done yourself or aren't willing to do, uh, and uh, you hold the same standard for everyone. You know, what you hold for your best friend is what the standard that you hold for somebody else. Once people understand that there's a level playing field. And that you are not willing to ask them to do something that that you've never done yourself, or aren't willing to do yourself. Uh, then you have the basis to be able to lead people. Hello, and welcome to Brand New Thought, where we delve into the minds of innovative thinkers and doers. I'm your host Rasmik Sargasyan, and today I have the honor to have Eric Kopian as my guest. Eric is a true visionary, a huge source of inspiration for me and Eric has about 30 years of experience in American politics. He has been part of campaigns or managed campaigns at presidential, congressional, state and municipal levels. If you're in Armenia, you most likely know Eric already for his show on CivilNet called Insights with Eric Akopian. He shares meaningful and thought provoking observations around political and other types of developments in Armenia and he challenges how we think both the society, the government, the opposition and even Armenia's international partners. So I'm so excited to get to speak with Eric. We will speak about purposeful communication and tactics, blind spots, and we'll try to address both interpersonal communication and mass communication. So relax, sit back and get ready to be inspired as we welcome Eric Akopian to Brand New Thought. Eric, thank you so much for being with us. It's an honor to have you on Brand New Thought. Uh, it's, it's an honor to be here. So would you share a little bit more about your background? I'm very curious what prompted you to begin a career in political consulting to begin with. Well, I started off as a, as a when I was in the university, I started off as an activist uh, right. working on causes uh, in the state of California. And then uh, that sort of spread uh, to doing things around the United States and eventually step by step led to working as a professional in politics. Uh, and there's in the United States work as a professional in politics, you either work as a staffer or you work on campaigns. And I worked on campaigns and eventually uh, about 20, 26 years ago, I started my own company, uh, mostly in the state of California. And uh, that was the, you know, it was just sort of a slow step-by-step -step thing where it was also a question that I was never really interested in anything else outside of public life or, or politics. It was a simple, it was a rather easy transition. Mm. Or was it more about your interest in politics or your interest in, let's say, mass communications and campaigns that prompted you well, to begin? No, it was my interest in politics. But then once you enter politics, you understand that, frankly, it is all communication. Mm -hmm. none of it matters so uh first year is the subject you're interested in then you learn the means on how to employ it and to use it or to be able to win be victorious or, or whatever whatever it is that you're pushing whether it's an issue whether it's uh, an election a candidate but obviously 
it all starts uh, the basis of anything is communication. Mm. That's beautiful. And and now you've relocated to Armenia. How, how long have you have you been living in Armenia? In Armenia me and my family have been in Armenia since 2017. So this is our sixth year here. Mm. Uh, we've gone back and forth for work once or twice, but uh, for the most part, we've been here since 2017. Mm. And how has your experience in Armenia been so far? Well, I mean, it's, uh, it's a great adventure. Uh, mm. There's never a dull moment in Armenia, as you know. You know, since we've been here, there's revolution, uh, war, counter-revolution, uh, different kinds of war, hybrid warfare, COVID, <laughs> you name it, we've seen it. So uh, it's overall, it's been a wonderful experience, minus obviously everything having to do with the war and uh, what you saw around you and how people were impacted by it. Yeah, let's definitely speak more about communication in the Armenian context later. But uh, also, I would please comment a little bit about your current show, Insights. I'm first of all, I'm curious where the name Insights came from. Uh, actually, uh, the genesis of the show is not me; it's my producer, uh, Hako, uh, who uh, who we were doing a lot of interviews uh, once a week, once every two weeks. And, uh, he suggested that we should. Uh, turned into a show, uh, which it's easier said than done because a show is a lot more work than an interview. An interview, you can just walk in and you can talk about it. A show takes a good, you know, day, day and a half of preparation. So it's, it's a lot of, it's relative amount of work that you need to put into it. It's also far more regular, which means you get tied down to a schedule. That's not as flexible. Uh, but the name came from, uh, uh, I believe it came from him. It was it wasn't from me, but we had, we had a couple of options, and I think uh, we chose that. It wasn't I wouldn't I wouldn't pretend there was great thought that went behind it, but uh, we were more interested in the in the content of it because uh, it's a different thing to be uh, uh, the center of attention in in a, in, a, in a show. You have to get used to it. To be honest, have the cameras on you. Uh, it's not a comfortable. Uh, feeling for most people and I was always a person in the backgrounds for almost all of my career so it was, it was a bit of a uh, it's a bit of a change interesting and it's becoming more and more popular every day what do you think is your mission with the inside show well I mean you have to be careful in saying this but because uh, the level of critical analysis uh, when it comes to politics or international politics or public relations in Armenia tends to be not very high. So uh, I really don't think I do anything spectacular on the show, to be honest. But you know, there's an old line in English in the world of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. You know, I think it's a bit of that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's, it's partly having an analysis that isn't tied to a particular agenda. Now, not having an agenda doesn't mean you don't have an opinion. It doesn't mean you have you don't have directions that you're more on this side or on that side. So this notion of uh, unbiased journalism or analysis is, is a bit of a misnomer. It's not reality. Everyone has biases. And the issue is not to say you have no biases. The issue is to acknowledge them. 
and then try to work around them and not have them uh, affect uh, too much uh, your reading one way or the other. So I, I think the, to the extent that we've had any success, it's in attempting to have unbiased analysis that isn't taking a side while having strong opinions. And then I think the second part of it is, uh, is frankly very stylistic because I think uh, there's a form of media that people are used to in Europe, which is very boring, to be honest. And uh, the, the style of the show that we do is a bit American, it's North American, it's a, it's a bit in your face. Uh, you know, it's factual, but then, you know, we can say things that other people won't say. Mm. Be more aggressive saying things that other people won't say or wouldn't think about saying or don't feel comfortable saying. And that's not a judgment on them. It's just everyone has their different style. So I think it's a combination of just two things where people, you know, on the one hand, watch to see uh, what what your read of a particular situation is and what's the next you know, bomb you're going to throw. Hmm. Very interesting. Okay, let's dive into purposeful communication and we'll, we'll go from general to specific. Maybe the first question could be, do you think there's such a thing as people who are born as good communicators or is this something that is taught and can be learned? I think there are people who have uh, the ability to become better communicators than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I know it among the, you know, elected officials that I've known over the years, you know. Uh, yeah, I can just give you a perfect example. You know, you could hate Bill Clinton, but if he would walk into a room, you know, he would grab your hand and look into your eyes and you think he's looking into your soul. Well, you know, he's really looking at the girl behind you. But you know, he would he would be convinced that you know he loves you. So there's there's an element of uh, 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 yes, there are certain people that have a talent, uh, but mm. that's all personality driven, and that, that that's not to be learned. Mm. Uh, but I think uh, communication is. Uh, and you have to be careful with this because communication is multiple different things. Mm-hmm. Communication that is me working a room of 10 people uh, to win them over to me uh, or to my opinions. And then there's talking to millions of people and they're entirely different. So you, you, there's, there's different levels of it. But fundamentally, all communication comes down to three things. You know, if you really, uh, if you want to have a sort of a, the structure, the superstructure of all communication is, uh, is the narrative telling. It's, inter- it's, an, it's an introduction, it's a problem and a solution. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you really want to say what is it that you're about, you know, first you say who you are, where you come from, whether you're a company, an individual, a political party. Then you outline whatever you think is the issue or the problem, whether it's corporate, whether it's political. And lastly, uh, the solution, which if you are advocating for yourself, it's almost always you. So if you can essentially write any piece of communication that's ever been uh, uh, written uh, is that. It's an introduction, it's a problem, the solution. So you can structure any letter like that, you can structure any uh, you know, phone wrap when you're calling voters or you're trying to sell something, that's, that's all it is. So everything becomes different variations of introduction, problem, solution. 
Uh, and, uh, uh, and, you know, some of the greatest, uh, uh, some of the greatest uh, political lines in history somewhat mirror that. I mean, you know, the, probably the most successful, you know, slogan of the last 150 years, you know, land, peace, and bread. Mm. You know, you know Lenin's line during the Bolshevik Revolution. Now, why is it brilliant? Is because you know uh, communication is brilliant is when everyone from the billionaire to the the you know the, the the person who cleans houses understands what it means. You don't have to be an intellectual to know what land, peace, and bread means. And the beauty of it is, it means completely different things to completely different people. Uh, or recently, like for example, in the United States will be uh, Black Lives Matter. You know, it, it's brilliant. Everyone knows what that means. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so uh, it's, it, it, the principles of it are the same. Uh, it's just different ways of outlining a introduction problem solution. That's beautiful. And there, I think there's research on what you're pointing to as well. So Malcolm Gladwell coined this term called stickiness, like sticky messages, which don't even have to be through like urban myths and they get circulated. So there's this beautiful book called Why Some Ideas Die While Others Survive, which speaks about what makes a message sticky. And one of them is simplicity. Just it's it's simple. It's easily repeatable. Well, I mean, it's, it's, you use the magic phrase because in communication, simplicity is your friend. And complexity is your enemy. Yeah. Uh, the uh, uh, almost when you come to mass communication, everything is about simplify, repeat, simplify, repeat, simplify, repeat. That's all you do. Uh, and uh, complicated narratives. That's one of the reasons, by the way, where uh, academics do so poorly in political life. Right. Uh, because you know, uh, some of the worst clients I've ever had, well, I should say well, some of the biggest uh, difficult clients I've ever had are academics because they think everyone wants to know the details of everything and people yeah. are interested in that. So uh, simplicity, you know, the, the clearest, simplest terms you can explain things, the economy of words, and it's also a function of modern media as attention spans. One of the reasons it's important is if you actually look at I can tell you, this is a, my experience in the United States. When I started, you essentially had 15 seconds, to 15 to 20 seconds to say what you were going to say. Mm. Now you have five to seven seconds. Yeah. So unless you're going to, unless you can say what, everything you're going to say in five to seven seconds, it's too late. Because the attention spans gets less and less and less and less. So it all becomes more simple. Some ways it's more stupid, but uh, that's just the nature of modern communication. Mm. That's beautiful. Uh, and what one term that speaks to the heart of what is point, pointed to is the curse of knowledge, which is once you know something, it's hard for you to imagine how it must feel not to know it. And academics kind of become a victim of that. They communicate not thinking about how it must feel not to know the complexities of the issues. Um, so, well, let's talk a little bit about one's ability to communicate and their quality of life. Do you think that these two are inherently connected? Well, of course, because uh, the ability to communicate will guide how successful you'll be in life. Uh, show me a successful person 
that doesn't know how to communicate. It's, it's the rare person who's like that. You know, it's the computer genius that invented something or the great scientist or the really eccentric, you know, uh, Henry Ford types. Um, yeah. but generally, you, you cannot get anywhere in life uh, without being able to express yourself, communicate yourself in clear terms. Uh, so it, it's one of the central defining uh, features of success or lack of success. You have to be exceptionally gifted in your field to succeed without good communication skills. Mm. Sometimes, you know, there's an element where people look down at good communication skills as you, it's a con. You're trying to pretend to be something that you're not. But it actually, yes, there are elements of that. So much of communication is a con. However, uh, so much of it isn't. Uh, if you can't explain what you're doing, uh, even if you're doing the best thing in the world, it's not particularly useful. You're not going to be effective and people are going to know about it. So the ability to communicate is uh, vital uh, and will define most life for most people will define success or lack of success. Some of it, frankly, is personality driven because someone's shy, but you have to work through that. Uh, and you have to break those barriers and to be able to communicate and tell your story. And, you know, all good communication is narrative telling. But this is why, you know, people think this, uh, uh, they think communication is actually a modern, uh, it's a modern concept. It, it isn't, you know. All of human history is narrative telling. Before we right. had written history, you had myths. And it's all narrative telling because you teach by narrative telling. Uh, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's primordial. It's, it's what people did around the fire 8,000 years ago. As you told stories, some of them true, some of them not true, some of them made up. Uh, but almost all communication is storytelling. And not much more than that. What's your story? You know, one of the most common English questions is, what's your story? Which is actually very accurate, because it is a story. Mm. <clears throat> That's beautiful. So, so generally speaking, what, what would you say is the best way to improve communication skills? And I, and I remember, and this is maybe specific to PR, public relations specifically, before I went to the Cronkite School, me and you talked and you said PR can't exactly be taught, it must be kind of you have to experience it. And then I got a job at a PR agency and I was really glad and I so I always remembered what you pointed to. What, what, how would you think, what's the best way to learn communicating? By doing it. Uh, you know, when I started, uh, when I started in politics as an activist, I was not, uh, you know, I, I didn't come from a rich family. I didn't have a connected, uh, well-connected uh, parents who can get me internships in Washington or things like that. I actually, my first two, two and a half years in politics, what I did is I went door to door talking to voters and then asking them to write checks for causes that they support. And then what I learned is if you can actually talk to random strangers who don't want, aren't interested in politics, don't want to talk about politics, and then you actually can convince them to write a check, which is the thing that they least like to do, to actually donate to a, uh, a cause, then at that point you can do anything. 
and it was the greatest experience. It's the greatest learning experience of my life, and and I still use it today. I can. I remember walking up to a house, and I would know exactly who lives there, based on the furniture that they would have behind their window. And you need to learn to speak to this person in their terms. Uh, and you have to do it continually during the day. So the only way to learn is actually to do it. Uh, and the harder the audience, the better. Uh, but then the other thing is it becomes, you know, what you learn is over time, uh, what you say gets less. Uh, uh, you, you just, it, it, it's the economy of words. When I look back, for example, on my particular specialty in the United States is writing direct mail, which is, you know, political mail that goes mm -hmm. to people's homes. And when I look at what I used to write 25 years ago, compared to what I write now, uh, you know, it, it looks like a page out of the Bible 25 years ago, and now it's three pictures and four headlines. So, uh, uh, the more you learn, the less, the less, the, the less words you say, uh, you know, uh, so that's that. That's beautiful. I, I couldn't agree more. You have to learn it by doing one, one of the very first jobs I had was I was a fundraiser for Amnesty in Sweden. That's when I was just learning to speak Swedish and, you know, Swedes aren't very known to be extroverted. So I would just go and need to start conversations and I thought it was kind of annoying now that I'm looking back at what I learned it was absolutely instrumental in my career we started the same place yeah what okay let me ask another general question before we go into more specific things what, what do you think makes a good storyteller in a way you already commented on this but if there's anything else you'd like to say about that oh uh, good memory good memory beautiful so there's research about like content of communication versus form, the words you may use or your body language and the tone. And they say that the content don't, doesn't matter as much as you think. So what do you think about the relationship of this? There's no, there's no contradiction between them. Yeah. It's but the, you, it's how you say something. Yeah. It's how you say something and what you say are the same. There's no difference between them. There's no distinction. Mm. Uh, there's a distinction on a theoretical level, but there's no distinction in a practical level. Uh, how you say, and if you have to decide how you say something is more important than the content. Mm. Uh, you know, it's the attitude, uh, the strength that you say it with. Uh, you know, uh, the, uh, one of the most important things you can ever do is if you ever want to watch a, uh, if, you, if you're watching a news story, like leaders are meeting or someone is at a, the prime minister or some president is at an event. Uh, what I always used to do with my clients is you turn the volume on. Mm -hmm. Because what you see with the volume on and what you see with the volume off is entirely different. Mm, most really? people watch it they actually have the volume off with their 17 things going on uh, for uh, recent things I would just ask you to go read the, the body language in the last CSTO summit in Armenia when uh, the prime minister said uh, and dropped his pen 
Yeah, and then put in drop to spend. It was yeah, very turn interesting. Off, turn off the volume and then look at because uh, that is far more relevant than the words that are used. Uh, it's the attitude uh, that you know the way you do it, the way you say it. I've, I've seen political careers made out of that. I've seen political careers ruined with with body actions. Uh, you know, just going from entertainment, just leaping from you know, from politics to entertainment. Uh, you know, they asked Frank Sinatra one time, what's the greatest love song of all time? Uh, and he said it was the Beatles, uh, something in the way she moves. And they said, why? He said, because it, one, it never says, he never uses the word love. Mm. Actually attracts you to a man or a woman is actually the way they move. Mm. Or visual. Yeah, it's the visual. So I think the two, uh, what you're asking, the two are actually the same. To answer the question simply, that's so interesting. Well, one of so I do coaching sessions with individuals and groups, and a lot of people bring up assertiveness, not feeling somewhat uncomfortable having difficult conversations. And I thought it would be a good person to ask this question: Why are people uncomfortable with this type of conversations, and how can they overcome their fear? Because uh, you can the results from these conversations if you do it consciously can be very unexpected very positive but we generally speaking kind of avoid that well, where do you think this fear comes from well i i think some of it's cultural mm -hmm. uh, i you know I, I lived in the united states from the time i was 11 to nearly you know to 50 so you grew up in that culture in so many ways and the culture is very in your face and assertive uh, and uh, Armenian culture is actually in your face, but it isn't a servant. Everyone is in everyone's face, but yeah. you, don't, you don't know, you have no idea what they mean, uh, uh, or what they're actually trying to say. So, uh, I think some of it is cultural, uh, Amota, you know, that, that kind of, uh, uh, where, you know, uh, you know, there's this, uh, I think it was, uh, Socrates, you know, that, 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 what the phrase pharisia, which means fearless speech. Mm -hmm. uh, there's speech and there's fearless speech. In Armenia, we're afraid of fearless speech. We're afraid of pharisia. Mm -hmm. Everyone says it, but no one wants to speak the, the harshest truths. Partly because it's a very small place and everybody knows each other and everyone's interrelated or they went to school together or half a dozen things. So it's very hard to get in someone's face. Uh, I think actually one of the small advantages that I have is because I don't know everyone. So uh, you're not offending someone's sister by mm -hmm. something that uh, might be uncomfortable. So uh, I think there's an element of culture in there. Uh, and actually, if you look at the Soviet experience, and this is universal in all countries and cultures that have gone through it is it, there's no place in the world where people are worse at communication than in this part of the world. It's not even close. Uh, partly because uh, that was never it was never in the uh, the less you said, the more you hid. Uh, you covered up incompetence. You didn't challenge it. Uh, you were much better off saying less, you know, if, if, if you know, uh, 
few people got sent to the gulag by by shutting up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is a huge deficit, which, which frankly, no one in this part of the world has come close to dealing with in any significant way. Even even the you know if you look at the Ukrainian efforts, it's not the Ukrainians who are doing it. It's Western PR firms that telling them what to do. Uh, otherwise, they would be on the same level as bad as what the Russians are. Mm. Uh, so the, the, this lack of communication skills in this part of the world is, is actually has a history of its political nature. It doesn't mean that people are not quite intelligent. They can be quite intelligent, but they cannot tell you why they're intelligent or how they're intelligent. Uh, so you get this weird, what I call expertism, you know, this the most dreaded word in Armenian language, Masnagit. Yeah. Which is uh, the, the, anybody who uses that word for themselves is actually guaranteed that the person doesn't know what they're talking about right, in almost every case. So uh, everyone becomes an expert in their little narrow field without having nothing to compare themselves to or, or, or a particular standard. But uh, we know every day we deal with a crisis of not being able to communicate. Uh, I'll never forget an incident in our newsroom. This was during the May invasions of Armenia last year. And uh, I was in the newsroom and I'm just waiting for the prime minister to have said something. And I'm just, there's nothing, absolutely nothing. And then at some point, one of our reporters, one of our older actually editors she looked at me and she goes did you really expect them to say something and i go yeah because you know no matter who the idiot is who's the president of the united states if the country is in a war they'll hold they'll say something in the first half an hour and we went through the entirety of the day and there was nothing i think the next day that night the prime minister was in front of the parliament he said what he said which is almost you know uh, it was way too much. Uh, you know, sometimes when he has to say little, he says a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's, but that's the legacy of uh, authoritarian systems, is that you don't think you you don't think you owe people an explanation. It's so interesting. So what you said, combined with the fact that we actually have one of the most liberal systems in the world in terms of freedom of speech. So we have the environment, but not the skills. And maybe that explains the current state of media in Armenia. Yeah, I mean, the state of media in Armenia is is primarily the the reason most Armenian media is awful is two particular reasons. People aren't trained correctly as journalists which means they don't really have a concept of what that means and how you need, you know, your job is to challenge power. And secondly, it's the, it's the, the way the funding sources work. I mean, outside of a few outlets, most funding sources are tied to this individual, tied to that party, yeah. and they hold a party line. Uh, and there's almost no investigative journalism that happens. Uh, and and I mean, there's no traditional press conferences in this country, for example, that are in, way useful uh actually by the way not even in most of europe there's really press conferences are very north american uh i was shocked uh, when 
I was in, in France and Belgium two years ago about how compliant the local media is to uh, elected officials. Hmm. I mean, we were at the EU Parliament. I mean, with the EU, with you know Charles Michel, and no one asked a question. Like, yeah, why are we here? Yeah, American reporters would have walked out and wrote a lousy story attacking you. Uh, so uh, it, it's not it's not just Armenia in this part of the world that's actually not very advanced in communication. In some ways, almost all of Europe is, to be honest. Mm. Outside of the UK, which is, I think, and communication is a very Anglo-Saxon thing in the modern world. That's why the best PR firms come from there. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. Um, so given your experience with, with political communication specifically, what have you learned from that that you think strategic communicators in other fields don't usually appreciate? What could they learn from political communications and let's say take it to tech or fashion or anything like that? It's, uh, it's simplicity to the extreme. And it's where communication meets propaganda, where you need to say something you're saying, you need to say it aggressively. You're not explaining things. And the other part of it is what I call, and you know, it's advocacy. All political communication advocacy is you're pushing for a particular point. You're not reporting both sides. You're not saying uh, this or that. You're saying this is the right way to do it. Mm. I want the right way to do it. So it's advocacy. Uh, and when it comes to advocacy, one of the things you need to do is uh, uh, there's a there's a there's a trick. It's called you know you you, you eliminate all the weak words, where you write something and then you go through it and you systematically get rid of the could, would, maybe, please. All language has to be assertive. We will. We will fight. We win. Uh, uh, it's it's you know it's, it's it's the affirmative verbs and you get rid of uh, anything that is weak. That's the difference in political communication. It's far more aggressive, uh, and it, it's it's far more advocacy than uh, uh, than education. You know, in political communication, you uh, you educate when you can and you manipulate when you must. Hmm. So that brings me to my next question. How much space do you think is left for spontaneous communication? So if we compare purposeful communication and spontaneous communication, and here's here's what I mean. Um, I think Quincy Jones, the producer of, producer of Michael Jackson, had this saying, every time I'm writing a song, I want to <clears throat> plan 80% of it, but then I want to leave 20% for God to come through. So that I, I think the spontaneity could be like an extension of the purposeful part. So what do you think about these two? Spontaneity is personality. Yeah. It's not communication. Uh, because, you know, how good is this person coming up uh, with uh, doing something? You know, uh, I remember when I was getting started in politics almost 30 years ago, I had a candidate. Uh, who went on to become a very prominent person. Uh, and we were debating an opponent, and we were in this retirement home. And our opponent went, got himself water, and then brought my candidate water. And after that, everything was done. 
nobody listened to what he was going to say. Everybody, all the old ladies fell in love with him, and that was the end of that. <laughs> so it, it was, uh, it was, uh, that, that, that's personality. Uh, and great people who are good with the media are also big personalities. You can't be a small personality. Uh, you have to understand the moment uh, and seize it. Uh, I'll never forget uh, during the uh, revolution, they had the famous meeting between Pashinyan and, and Serge. Mm-hmm. And uh, the moment that Serge Sarkisian walked off the stage, he walked out of power. I remember watching that. Was, he's finished. Mm-hmm. Just, first of all, this guy is on the street and you're the president, or at, I don't know if it was prime minister then yet. Hey, no, he had already become prime minister. Yeah, he was the prime minister. Yeah. So first of all, you meet with him, which means you already elevate him to your level, one. Two, uh, you come in in a suit and he's dressed like a taxi driver. Well, there's a lot more people who are taxi drivers than there's people in suits. Right on. Third, you walk out of the room and you walk off the stage and he stays, he wins. And people listen to him. There's social proof too. The mass is gathered and continues listening to him. It doesn't follow you exactly that much. So uh, they made they did everything wrong. And then him walking off the stage, you're, you're uh, symbolically walking out of power. Mm, well, yeah, you're right. I mean, there were so many impressive moments like that, which kind of makes us wonder about some of the gaps of communication in our foreign policy or the things we hear. Well, yeah, one of the most famous ones which people don't recall and few people know is, uh, you know, in, in Cuba, the, the one of the big religions is San, Santeria, mm-hmm. uh, which is this, you know, voodoo type religion, which is very big with Afro-Cubans specifically. And the white dove is the highest symbol in Santeria. And there's a famous... Uh, speech that Fidel Castro come down from the mountains and then a white dove comes and lands in his hand. Now, was that white dove released by one of his aides? I have no idea. But it didn't matter. All the, the millions of people that follow Santeria thought he was blessed by the gods. Yeah. So it, this is so interesting because we live almost in the feeling of our thoughts in our points of perception. It doesn't even matter what the reality is. In, a, in terms of communication, it matters what we think it is. And that's what communication is. It's, uh, it's creating points of perception. Would you agree with that? No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's right on point. All right. Let's speak a little bit about interpersonal communication versus mass communication. What are some of the most important subtleties that, uh, let's say, strategic communicators should be aware of when, when distinguishing these two? Well, I mean, when you mean interpersonal, you mean like in, in your personal life, or you mean in, in, in uh, no, just one, those are different things. No, just one to one versus you are communicating massively with audiences, so you have to adjust the content to the audiences and all that. I think, well, frankly, when it comes to -to one-to-one, especially in small work settings, communication is really tied to leadership. It's really a form of leadership. Uh, Beautiful. Because if if you are, you can be the most master communicator in the world, but 
if you're completely insincere and people don't trust you, it doesn't matter. Uh, so leadership, when it comes to which is the basis, you know, the basis of all effective leadership is is just a few things. One is you don't ask other people to do something you've never done yourself or aren't willing to do. Uh, and uh, you hold the same standard for everyone. You know, what you hold for your best friend is what the standard that you hold for somebody else. Once people understand that there's a level playing field and that you are not willing to ask them to do something that, that you've never done yourself or aren't willing to do yourself, uh, then you have the basis to be able to lead people. Uh, one of the problems that I have with, uh, if it was up to me, I would close down every uh, MBA school in the world because they are wrong on the first principle because you can never manage people. You can only lead them. Mm -hmm. If you're managing people, you're already lost. Uh, if you're managing people, you're managing problems. Uh, and you're already gone. <clears throat> you can only lead people. You know, you either lead them well or you lead them badly. But you can't manage them. Management quickly falls into manipulation and you lose people very quickly. Mm. Uh, one thing that's very consistent, and I've seen this among voters, generally, your average voter anywhere in the world is not particularly bright or an intellectual. Let's just be honest. It doesn't matter what country you're in. They'll vote on things that you cannot even imagine. This guy wears a nice suit, you know, half of a dozen different things. But there's always one thing very consistent with voters from all over the world that I've seen in countries that have open election for uh, political systems. And that is people know a phony from a thousand miles away. If they know, if they think you're insincere, uh, everyone will know from, you know, uh, the professor to uh, the day laborer. So uh, if you're a phony, people know that. Uh, and people see through it. And then there's not enough communication in the world to make you look good if people think you're insincere uh, or you, you're not the real deal. Uh, and so I, I think people have to understand communication is not a panacea for everything. You know, uh, there are certain people you cannot, certain things and people you cannot make look good. So first, it's, it's the basis of what this person is or what the idea is, what the movement is. That has to be correct. Because if it's not correct, it's not going to last. That's so true. And uh, like even the opinion surveys in Armenia reflect that quite a lot, even in terms of our relationship with foreign powers and everything. I mean, no leader, even dictator, should presume that people are stupid. People make their conclusions and it's getting reflected in their opinions well, every day. And frankly, even dictators, even, even the worst dictatorships in the world care about public opinion. Yeah, I mean, probably they care about that even more. Well, because well, the, 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 the day is going to come when they go and it's public opinion that decides them. As, as right. irrelevant as public opinion might be on the daily happenings of that country. Well, what do you think is at the essence of public relations? And in a way, you already commented on this, but I'm curious if you'd like to add anything more. It's storytelling. Story uh, you know, this isn't uh, anything new, but, you know, one of the great uh, Persian poets was Hafez. 
I remember reading him and he had this great line that you can just put in every PR office in the world. And he said, the words we speak is the house we live in. Mm, that's a beautiful thought. You know, the words we speak, and it's absolutely true. Uh, you speak good words, you speak, you know, you do things effectively, you do things right, you do things well, or for the just cause, then your house stands. If your house is based on lies, then it eventually falls apart. Mm. And the language that we use is inherently connected to the thoughts that we think. So not only is it about communicating it to others, but literally how we perceive the world, like the kind of words we use affects how we perceive the world. Yeah, no, it's just the, the, the smallest changes in, in, in wording on something will have a dramatic effect. Uh, for example, in a survey, uh, mm. on a particular word, uh, it is, uh, it, it, it's, it's a fascinating world. Uh, and frankly, you only learn by making mistakes. That's a good point <clears throat> on surveys. Sorry, uh, but I just remembered one example of that. Like if you ask people, how much do you agree with the statement? They're just more inclined to agree versus if you ask how much do you disagree with this, they're going to be inclined to disagree. Oh, no, no, it's like, yeah, if, if, uh, yeah, it's how you ask a question and uh, it's also the tone of how affirmative you are. Uh, you know, uh, so it's, uh, I remember there was this, I won't give the name, but there was a member of Congress who was uh, sort of the worst imaginable member of Congress. And whenever they used to ask him what his opinion on such subject was, he, he would just stand up and say, I stand right on that issue without saying <laughs> what that was. <laughs> I stand right on that issue. And in 80% of the times it would work because the way he would say it is like, oh, well, he agrees with me. <laughs> I think there was a similar meme circulating like last year on social media, which which was like, I'm with whatever the current issue is. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, how important is it to be audience oriented? And like, maybe you could share a little bit if you're choosing messaging points or tactics and you're conducting research on a specific audience, share a little bit more about your thinking process around that. Well, you have to be very careful. What are, you, are you talking about a room? Are you talking about a classroom? Are you talking about 30 people? Are you talking about a million people? Uh, generally, when you're talking to a small group of people, you're actually talking to 10% of people in that room. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like being in a university lecture hall. You talk to the uh, 100 students there, 15 of them are really listening. You talk to them and you focus on them. And you don't lower the bar, you don't lower the standard of what you're saying to make it something uh, that everyone is going to be interested in. No, you, you keep it at a high level and whoever is interested will be interested in the high level and whoever is not is not. I think when you're talking to much larger groups of people, it's entirely different. Uh, then it's about really... Uh, uh, it's almost like a focus group driven thing where you test particular words and you constantly use it. However, you know, that can also be entirely overused. Uh, I've done focus groups where you shut the door and people say what they're going to say. And 
if you're not careful, people will quickly see that as manipulation. If you're using the same word over and over again in different ways. Uh, so it's, it's all a very subtle balancing act. Uh, you know, a good communicator is much easier to know and recognize than to explain. Mm, that's true. That was a famous uh, Supreme Court case in the United States about pornography, and one of the justices wrote saying, "You know, I don't know how to I don't know how to uh, describe it or how to categorize it, but I know it when I see it." What <laughs> <laughs> uh, What do you think about the future of mass communication and? Now we have ChatGPT and AI, and many people are predicting like copywriters are going to be eliminated and all that. How, how do you think the field of mass communication is going to look like in 10 years? Um, I think you would know a lot better than I do because time has passed me by. I'm just being honest. The basics of communication doesn't change, but the technology is moving so fast that uh, everything we know now will be irrelevant uh, five, 10 years from now. Well, many things we know today will be relevant five, 10 years from now. And the forms of communication change. Uh, and we're also actually entering a world in which, uh, less so in Armenia, but around the world, in these countries that are hyper-wired, like South Korea and places mm -hmm. like that, or the United States, summer, people really have lost all their basic abilities to communicate. Uh, like. You know, when young people go on a date, I don't know what they talk about, or can they even express themselves? Uh, uh, so we actually have huge problems in technology-driven. Uh, and uh, it's an instant gratification. You have to, so a lot of basic communication skills uh, are actually being lost in the digital world. I'm not sure if there's a solution to that, but it's it's uh, it's it's you know you need to talk to people under thirty. Right. What do you think is the most common misunderstanding about mass communication? Uh, you know that you that you have to be loud or you have to be you have to say a lot. You have to be subtle and you have to say little. Mm. And uh, imagery is far more relevant than any words that you use. Very true. What is one insight you have about mass communication or even beyond that, that almost nobody would agree with you in your field of expertise? I'm not sure uh, that they would disagree with me. It's Maybe we not be so likely to think of it as something that has already been ascertained. Uh, what I call uh, uh, negativity uh, is. Uh, People shy away from it, uh, but 
there's endless, endless surveys that show negative communication as far more effective than positive one. So there's, there's this instinctive thing about you don't want to go negative. Now, that's a very dangerous weapon. You have to know how, you, how to use it because you can, it can entirely backfire. But if, if you really want to say something uh, or attack an idea or an opponent uh, in uh, how you use negativity and the importance of negativity uh, in how you define something, and people shy away from it, and in, in Armenian culture, they mostly shy away from it. And this is also, again, very North American, to be honest, or, or Anglo-Saxon, where we, we are free to go after and attack someone, uh, in sometimes in brutal terms. Hmm. Uh, but there's times where that's actually needed. Uh, so I think yeah, it's, especially it's, when you're surrounded by dictators that are literally yeah, trying to no, I mean, it's, it's, uh, genocide. You know, one of the, uh, I think one of the reasons that people like my show is because I call people that they don't like. You know, yeah. uh, uh, you know, uh, Alev's never a president; he's a dictator. Uh, you don't. Sometimes you call him by his first name. Uh, so, you know, the person who was actually a genius with this, no matter what you think of him, was actually Trump. Uh, his thing, the tactic of giving everyone a nickname, which by the way is quite Armenian, <laughs> uh, was brilliant because it gets in people's heads. Mm. You know, little Marco. Yeah, little Marco. You know, uh, it's he, he's absolutely, you know, Trump is actually a fantastic communicator, no matter what insane things he says. He actually knows how to use uh, uh, the principles of persuasion. Same thing, by the way, uh, like Pashinyan is the only Armenian politician that knows modern communication, except he only understands social media communication, <laughs> which is very good for revolution, but it's not very good for running a country. Yeah. Facebook lies for an hour where you're going on or a disaster because you end up saying way too much. Mm. Social media is good for very short blurbs, you know? So he's actually, he's not a bad community. He's actually the first modern politician Armenia has, no matter what you think of him. I agree. He knows how to uh, use communication media, especially social media, uh, very effectively. But outside of that, you know, that's it. It's not like he can, uh, all the, the rest of it is all lost. Hmm. Okay, let's switch a little bit to Armenia because we kind of already addressed and and then again, you kind of commented, but how, how would you evaluate our capacity to communicate? And maybe we can go a little bit deeper into generational like differences. Do you notice a difference between let's say women versus men or the younger generation versus the older generation? No, our ability to communicate is shit. I mean, the, the, we don't have any. <laughs> it's the most basic things. Uh, and the younger generation is slightly better, but, but overall, no, there's absolutely no, uh, those skills don't exist. Uh, and I think part of it they don't exist is from a democratic deficit that we've been dealing with. 
for so many years. Listen, I think people who have ruled or run this country, however you want to describe it, none of them have ever felt that they need to explain to the public what they do. And the reason, and then none of them have been stupid, to be honest with you. Not a single one of them has been stupid. You might say they're crooked, you might say they're bad, what, whatever. And, but they're not idiots. None of these people are idiots. You don't get to a position like that by being a complete idiot. Uh, ultimately, when you really dig deep, none of them think that they actually owe an explanation because they don't think the public matters. So I think our lack of communication really starts with our lack of political development and understanding that you need to explain to people why you want to do something and why. Uh, so our political and thereby set an example because if you don't set an example, they're not going to do it in their own communities. Yeah, uh, I mean, they don't have the ability to communicate good things that they do, uh, much less bad things that need to be explained. So, but I think the the the, the, the political communication crisis in Armenia, the heart of it is a lack of this democratic deficit. Is the mm -hmm. idea that I need to explain to my constituents why I'm doing what I'm doing. So, uh, you know, that is slowly changing, uh, but that's where we're at. Uh, and from that point on, then it becomes all the things that we have talked about in the last hour, which is, you know, how you say it, you know, the context that you say it in, uh, but just the fact that they can't explain good things uh, tells you, you know, how, how bad they are. I mean, if you look at some of the press releases that come out of, uh, well, the places that actually have press releases, which is quite rare, they're, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're, they're a disaster. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, every time I look at these uh, communication from somebody that talks about like, taking, you know, Azerbaijani environmentalists as if some, as if, as if it is some serious. Uh, movement or if it's real like when something is a fraud like that you just don't you just ignore it you move on nobody believes it anyway so why the hell do you bring it up uh outside of making fun of it you just don't deal with it and yeah you because it. you don't want to make them part of the agenda it's the agenda setting theory in its classic application so yeah no I, I, but we're we're awful uh, slowly, slowly getting better, but uh, I think that gen genesis of it is, uh, is is the democracy deficit because it's not like these people aren't smart enough to figure it out. They just don't think they need to explain themselves. Hmm. And that's something that we may not be able to actively change in the near future. So, how do you think we could gradually progress our communication skills? Also, considering. Yeah, I mean, it's not. Uh, listen, I mean, there are efforts going on. Some of them, we, me and you, have talked about. I mean, if you look at some of the coverage that's been going on in the last internationally, I mean, you you sort of see us telling the right narrative, telling the right story. Uh, but it, it's really a function of having enough people with proper experience, in this case, Western experience, to be able to transmit those skills and teach people how to do it. Uh, we never have a, we don't have an IQ problem in our, in our, you know, there's, there's a lot of smart people who learn very quickly. Uh, what we have is a lack of worldliness problem. It's parochialism problem in which uh, 
uh, you know, this is your world and you're not exposed to uh, uh, the broader world uh, or more importantly, what the, what the world cares about. Uh, you know, you have to understand what the audience demands. Uh, I mean, I, I'll just give you a perfect example. You know, like we always like to harp on, harp on and on about the Armenia being the first Christian nation. Okay, fine. There's an audience for that. There's a limited audience for that. In Europe, that's a net negative. You talked about in your show. Yeah, you tell an average Swede or a German with a first Christian nation, like, yeah, well, whoop de doo, you know, well, what does that even mean? Uh, in their mind, it means that, oh, oh, okay, then, you know, women aren't equal, gay people don't have any rights. So, okay, I'm not saying you don't tell that story, you just tell it to the right audience. Yeah. Uh, so, you have to understand what the world, you know, when you're as small as we are, our opinions don't matter. What matters is, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you play on world opinion? And what is it that they care about? And that really comes from life experience. It comes from being exposed to the other world to know that, and you were, you know, you went to school in Arizona, where I would guarantee you 98 out of 100 people could not show Armenia on the map. That's right. And 50 of that 98 could care less about finding anybody on the map. Uh, so there's a different ways you talk to those people. Uh, you know, so that's that. And not appreciating that could even backfire. You talk about this in the show, which is something I really like. If you go to a community of people that know a lot about, let's say, repression of Muslim people, and now all of a sudden you come and bring this topic. I mean, how is how is that going to go? People are going well, to go. I mean, yeah, that's like, some sort of a. Yeah, it, it is a communication only, man. You know, you you play to the audience. This is the thing. It doesn't matter one what we care about. If you're trying to convince the world, it doesn't matter what we care. First of all, uh, and second of all, and this is the sad part. It doesn't even know what doesn't even matter. What is the truth? What matters is what they care about and what's the best way to present it to them. So you can sit around and complain about why they don't care about this or why they don't care about that. Well, they don't. So uh, they care about this, you know. Uh, I, I'll guarantee you, if someone does five-minute video about the street dogs of Yerevan, he will get two million views in the first year. That the street dogs actually follow the traffic laws, while drivers don't. And they actually bark at people who drive by and don't wait at the red light. So, uh, because that's what the world demands. Uh, one of the things is that we have a hard time understanding is, uh, since we always deal with existential issues, is that how frivolous life is in other places and what they care about. Now, some of it is insulting. I get it, but you know, uh, if people in, in Canada or Australia or the United States care more about dogs than about people, then you highlight the dogs. I think the signature statement of Walter Cronkite, which is, and that's the way it is, uh, perfectly summarizes you. And we, in Armenian, we actually have a good version of that. Eta. We just have to acknowledge that. All right, Eric, maybe two more concluding questions to end this conversation also on a more positive note what's what's giving you hope these days 
about what about Armenia? about about the, the world it could be about the world it could be about the armenian or about armenia specifically no young people about armenia specifically it's young people if you spend enough time with uh, in armenia with people under the age of 30 and the attitudes they have and the things they work and again it's not everyone under 30 there's people who are actually involved in things uh they are and it's an amazing uh, generation and what i can't wait is for them to get uh, you know five ten years older and run the country uh so i, I i'm the most exciting and the best thing about Armenia is giving them to young people uh that are the best of whom are world class they're equal to their peers anywhere in the world and uh and uh the second thing and, and it's not much talked about is uh, we're on, on a positive and it's it's very subtle you know we're a country that's gone from making a transition where people are going or quickly making a transition from being subjects to becoming citizens uh, and you hear it from members of parliament from people like are demanding things if you fix the road and it gets bad in three months you're going to hear about it uh, and this is uh, this is sort of democratic muscle that you build where people expect things uh, and one of the things that people when we move to self-declaration of taxes where you have to everyone has to self-declare in tax there's actually endless studies and polling that shows that category of people which in armenia will tend to be the more affluent actually when they start paying their taxes what they demand from their government vastly increases their standards vastly increase on what they expect so I think those are the two things as young people and, and the fact that on a daily basis, you know, you talk to people involved in everything from political reform, military reform, people who don't even know the subject necessarily, but they're like dedicated to it. And most of the outside world doesn't see that. So I, I think those are the those are the things uh, uh, that are positive about Armenia. About the world, frankly, there's very little to be optimistic about. To be honest, I think we're uh, we're sort of somewhat going through the great unraveling, uh, where uh, the old world is crashing. We just don't know what it's going to take its place. Yeah, that's so true. Thank you so much for that. And one last question: If you could share a piece of advice, an inspiring word, or anything like that, to let's say to the 25-year-old Eric. What would that advice be? Run. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I wouldn't give myself advice. I would just say. Uh, we were speaking about a hypothetical audience. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, there's this, uh, I've lived in two places most of my life. Uh, the United States, which is a land of, uh, ridiculous optimism and then in Armenia which is on the other extreme of ridiculous pessimism and neither of these are accurate uh, I think if you're a young person it might actually be hard for you to recognize this in many ways Armenia is actually a land of opportunity where you can actually do things uh, where the entry into any field is actually rather simple 
let's take you for an example. You can open up a public relations firm and and have a client base and be rather successful in Armenia now, when in the United States, you wouldn't think about doing that until you're 45, just because there's too much competition. So uh, one, don't limit yourself. Uh, uh, dare, dare to do things, try great things and fail. Even if you fail, just, you know, dare great things. Uh, and uh, don't give in to the, the stupid pessimism of our culture. And lastly, understand that in today's world, uh, your market or your audience is not Armenian. It's actually the entirety of the world. So you can actually you know, clients from all over the world. So it doesn't even matter. The world is your stage. You know? Shakespeare is saying finally came true. Uh, you know, you can be sitting, there's people sitting in uh, uh, you know, Gumri, you know, clients in Australia and Canada and Argentina. So don't limit yourself. But most importantly, you want to do something, just do it. Don't don't fear failure uh, because that's how you learn. You know, reach for the stars and fail. It's better than the other alternative. Thank you so much, Eric, for a very insightful conversation, for sharing your words of wisdom and inspiring us. It has been a joy to get to speak with you. Same here. Noon's up.